I really quick wanted to insert a trigger warning. We will be talking about rape, torture, sodomy, and all that sort of things going into talking about John Wayne Gacy in part three. Welcome back to another episode of the Spooky Rip Gene Mom. My name is Peyton Kennedy, and today is the third and final part of Illinois talking about John Wayne Gacy. Before we get into it, I have exciting news. For my podcast cover art, as you know, it's just me, but I reached out to one of my friends who um, was like a graphic designer, Um, But when she got out of college and COVID hit and stuff like that, she wasn't able to do it. So she hasn't done it in a while, but I wanted someone to do it that I knew that I really, really liked, that I trusted and would know what I kind of wanted and take what I wanted and bring it to life. So I reached out to her and she is actually making me a new cover art. So you don't have to see my face. You get to see something like cute and more like I don't want to say more like me because a picture of my face is me, but more to do with the podcast, not me, because it's not a podcast about my life. It's a podcast, even though like the beginning, I normally talk about me, Um, but it's a podcast about the terrible things that happened to these victims, the crimes that have happened, because I know I've like, I sound like a broken record. I don't want to romanticize the fact of serial killers, but I know that serial killers' minds are something that people are super interested in. Like me, I'm interested in true crime because I, the things that go on in serial killers' brains, I'm like, what, how, how the hell does this even happen? Um, so there's that. I also wanted to let you guys know that more than likely with every episode, you'll hear me talk about Final Boss. It is my, um, family-owned company ran by my dad uh, Derek Bullhofer, and it is a trash company where you can rent a big dumpster from him, fill it up with all the garbage that you want, um, besides a couple of things that can't be taken in the dump, and he'll drop it off to you, you fill it up, he picks it up, and he takes it to the dump and charges a fee. It's super cool, it's awesome. My dad's also a really, really great guy to work with, um, and Like I said, if you are clearing out a house because you're moving, if you are planning on renovating, if you're a college student and you are moving back to your hometown or you're just moving from an apartment to a house and need to get rid of a ton of garbage, that's a good way. Like he's a good person to call Um, and it's the final boss. You can find him on Facebook. If you have me on Facebook, I am usually posting about it on there as well. So just give that a look. Again, his name is Derek Bullhofer. He's my dad. I love him. And then with that being said, we are on part three of John Wayne Gacy. And I think from now on, because my mom and my little brother Corbin came to town, which I really hope you guys like the episode where he was a guest star and my mom was a guest star, um, I went by parts and researched a certain amount and then I um did an episode and then I researched more and then did an episode that made part one and part two each only like 30 to 40 minutes long and I'm afraid part three might be a little bit longer than that um so from now on I'll probably do all the research first and if it's a lot and I need to split it up then I will but if it's not then I'll probably put it together because part one and part two could have easily been just one longer episode 
Um, and in part two, we left off where John finally came back to talk to the detectives. Remember at 11, well, they went at 9 p.m. He said he was waiting for a call from his mom because his uncle died. He accused um, Lieutenant Kozinzak of being, um, oh, what was it? He had no respect for the dead. Um, and then at 11, John Gacy called the police asking if they still needed to see him. They were like, yeah. But then by 1 o'clock, John still hadn't shown up. The uh, Lieutenant Kozenzak and his detectives left. And then um, at 3.20, John finally showed up. He was covered in mud. The person at the front desk was like, they're not here. You got to leave. Um, and then John came back at 9.30 and they started to question him. Now, every single question they asked, he he just denied right off the bat. Just denied, denied, denied everything. So that's when they decided that they were going to do 24-7 surveillance. I had to pause to put my part two notes away because I did, so I did John part one and part two and then Indiana came out and now it's part three. So I had to get my notes out to remember what I, where I had left off for sure um, and what I needed to talk about and then I had papers everywhere so I, I had to put it away. I could not do it. So they started the 24-7 surveillance. Police also talked to the neighbors, um, friends, family, co-workers. All of them pretty much said that John was super nice. He was super well-liked in his community. But they did say he was weird. Um, the surveillance team included Mike Albright, Dan, uh, David Hackmeister, Ronald Robinson, and Robert Schultz. So the surveillance basically was, they just, if he was at his house, they just waited outside his house. Now, they're really funny because they would park inside his driveway. Like, so John would know that they were there. And then if he left, they followed him wherever he went. And he would tell people and the neighbors when they were like, John, what the heck is going on? He'd say that he was being harassed and it was all over a misunderstanding. And, um... They also would, he would also ask the surveillance team if they would want to come inside to have dinner with him, which I think is a little weird. Um, and then Robert's still missing. We still don't know where Robert is. And they have helicopters now looking for him. Michael Rossi called uh, Lieutenant Kozenzak and told him about Gregory Godzix and Charles Hitula's disappearance and they were found in an in the Illinois River that year. Um, I don't remember if I talked about Michael and I think I get to him in a few minutes because I know in the last part I was like oh yeah I'll tell you about David Kramer and Michael Rossi and how they play into a part in here and then I didn't tell how they played in a part in here because for some reason my notes when I was editing my notes I didn't transfer that part to part two's notes and it just stayed in part three. So it's all fun and dandy. Because I had part of part three already researched. And then I was like, well, I want to split it up this way. And I didn't move those over. Which if I had, it probably would have made part two a little longer. And I'm going on a rampage, so I'm done. Um, December 15th, DePlane investigators did get more info about John's battery charge against Jeffrey Regnall. And in case you don't remember what happened to Jeffrey, I will remind you. So John had lured him to his car. He's the one that was um, chloroformed over and over again, raped and tortured. Um, and he was dumped in the park with severe chest and facial burns, as well as he had rectal bleeding. 
they also talked to John's ex-wife. Um, that's when they learned about John Bukovic's disappearance. They had traced the high school ring found in John's house to John Allen Syke. I said Sizek last time and I realized I was wrong. And then I knew how to pronounce it before. And then I tried to type, like write my notes out and phonetically and it didn't work. I think it's Syke or Zeke. Zeke. I think that's it. Um, on December 16th, John started inviting the surveillance team to eat with him, like I had said earlier, but he taunted them by disobeying traffic laws because he knew they wouldn't arrest him off that. He would also just drive and drive and drive as fast as he could until he lost them. And this is where David Cramp becomes more a part of the story and how Michael Rossi has been a part of the story. So David Cram was 18 years old. John picked him up while he was hitchhiking on July 26, 1977 or 78, um, offered him a job with PDM, his construction company, and David started working as soon as he got hired. On August 21st, David moved into John's and on August 22nd, David turned 19. He obviously celebrated with John, and they had several drinks. John was dressed as Pogo the Clown, and he convinced David to do the whole handcuff charade thing. But he cuffed David in the front and not behind his back. John then swung David around while holding the chain link cuffs and told him that he wanted to rape him. David kicked him in the face, as he should, and he was able to free himself. In September... David was still living with John, and John went to David's door wanting to rape him and said, and I quote, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you give me what I want. Disgusting. And with this, David said no. Uh, John's response to him was, you ain't no fun. So at this point, David's done. He moves out on October 5th, and he left PDM. He would periodically work for John oh I'm sorry I said that he moved in in 1977 or 78 he moved out in October 5th of 1976 so he had to move in before that so sometime in 1976 and he would still work periodically for John for the next two years uh and then after David moved out Michael Rossi moved in here's where he comes into play so Michael Rossi was 18. He had worked for PDM from May 1976 until April of 1977. I'm really sorry if you hear the jets. I, I'm trying to get this out before the baby wakes up. So you may hear some jets. If it gets too loud, I will pause. Uh, he also sometimes assisted John in clowning at big events. He would be Patches and John would go as Pogo. So now you're probably like, Peyton, okay, you told us, you said you're going to tell us last part. You're finally telling us. Why does this matter? Well, on December 16th, David consented to being interviewed. And he had said that John was hardworking. He had an open mind about having sex with men. And he did mention that John gave him a watch that John said was from a dead person. Okay, I think we're in the clear. Um, on December 17th, they had a formal interview, police did, with Michael Rossi. And he said that John Zeke told, uh, had sold him the car, my bad, because he needed the money to move to California. And on December 17th, John invited detectives Albright and Hackmeister for dinner. They said no. 
On December 18th, neighbors said that John was looking rough. The surveillance team said John was looking rough. He was unshaven, he looked tired, he was very anxious, and he was drinking heavily. But he went to his lawyer, Sam Amoretti, and said, hey, they're harassing me, they're surveilling me, they haven't arrested me for anything, what can I do? And Sam said, file a civil lawsuit, and they filed for $750,000. When they filed it, they said that the surveillance had caused loss of reputation for John and that they were harassing him. On December 18th, Michael Rossi was interviewed for a second time. This time he was more cooperative and he said in the summer of 77, John had him spread 10 bags of lime in the crawl space of his home. And the lime masks the smell. On December 19th, they started gathering evidence for a second search warrant. So this is at this point, Sam Amoretti has filed a lawsuit and the hearing is set for December 22nd. John again invited the surveillance team to eat, and this time the officers said yes. So Officer Officer Robinson carried on conversations with John to just keep him distracted while Officer Schultz looked around, tried to get some serial numbers for a Motorola TV that they believed to be John's uh, Zeke's. He wasn't able to, but when he went to the bathroom, he had noticed a funky smell, um, Kind of, he never came out and said, but you know as a police officer when you're smelling a rotting corpse. And he said it was coming from the vent. And they said that the reason why the other officers with the first search warrant had missed this was because the air hadn't been turned on. So there was no air circulation through the vents going through the crawl spaces bringing out this smell. On December 20th, David Cram and Michael Rossi agreed to be interviewed in relation to John Zeke's and the dis- disappearance of Robert Peast. We talked about Robert Peast in the part two. He was the one that, he was the last victim. His mom was like, no, I know that he's missing. Um, and he had been dead up in the attic during the first search warrant. Um so, Lieutenant Kozenzak asked where they believed John would have put Robert's body, and Michael came right out and said that he believed the possibility of the crawl space. They also believed that John had stolen uh, John S.'s car, and uh, Michael agreed to a polygraph test. When they were asking him questions, Michael did deny any involvement with the disappearance. He also denied knowing where Robert was, but then he refused to answer any more questions. He uh, had erratic and inconsistent responses, so Lieutenant Kozenzak was, in quotes, unable to render a definite option as to how truthful his answers were, end quote. Michael did mention the trenches that um, John had him dig in the crawl space, and he did mention that whenever John had him do this, he would insist that he not go off the path that he was supposed to dig. So now David Cram is being interviewed by police, and he's telling them about when John Gacy tried to rape him. He told them that after the search on December 13th, so after the search warrant, John was completely pale, Uh, Because he saw mud on the carpet and he believed that it came from the cross space. John had grabbed a flashlight and immediately went into the cross space looking for evidence of them digging. And the police did ask if David had ever been in the cross space. 
He said yes when John wanted him to dig and spread lime and then also dig in the trenches. John said they um, were for drainage pipes, but David did explain that the space area was two feet wide, six feet long, and two feet deep, which are the size of graves. On December 21st, John drives to his attorney's office. I read in some places that it was already a meeting set up. I read in another place that his attorney, um, Mr. Albright, was very, Sam Albright was very shocked that he was there, but, um, or Amoretti, Sam Amoretti. Um, so John drove to his attorney's office. Officers Mike Albright and David Hackmeister followed him. They thought it was weird he was going to his lawyer's house, but from what I read in most articles, the meeting had already been set up to discuss the lawsuits. When John gets in there, though, Sam says he just starts confessing to everything right away. And it looked a little something like this. So he picked up the Daily Herald, and on the front page was a picture of Robert Peace letting him know, like, hey, this kid's missing. What happened to him? And John pointed and said, this boy is dead. He's in the river. End of quotes. His exact words from word. He was visibly drunk. And so Sam goes up to the police that are surrounding him. And he tells them basically like, hey, due to client confidentiality, I can't tell you what he said. But please do not let him leave here. Because you do not want him to leave. But the police can't just hold John there without any like without any suspicions so they just have to continue to follow him John did get into his car and leave and he in fact went the next place he went after his lawyers was to a gas station where he sold pot to some teenage kid the police weren't going to arrest him for that because it would ruin everything else that they had going on but they did call it in so after he sells the pot, he goes back home, he grab, goes inside, grabs his dog, comes out, goes over to a neighbor's house and asks the neighbor if he could, if the neighbor could take care of his dog. He was like, listen, with PDM construction and being followed by the police officers for this huge misunderstanding, I just don't have the time to take care of my dog. And when all this blows over, I would love to take him back. I just need you to watch him for the time being. And his neighbors were like, yes, we'll watch him, of course. Then John goes to a friend's house and he like knocks on the door. His friend answers. He's like, what's up, John? And John goes, I've been a bad boy. In exact quotations. And the neighbor basically was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And gives him a drink. And all John says is the end is near. And that the police are trying to pin a murder on him. And as, like, the neighbor's trying to ask questions, John gets frustrated and he goes to leave. But the neighbor stops him and says, well, I thought you wanted to tell me something. At this point, like, John turns around to look at him and he goes, I killed 30 people, give or take a few. And he asks, well, who are they? And John says, bad people. And then he cried. He then left his friend's house at 10.55 a.m., went to David Cram and Michael Rossi, and said, I'm glad you can make it. This is the last time you'll ever see me. They go in to the house. They talk. All three come out around 11.30 a.m. So they are maybe in the house at most 30 minutes. If his friend lives a, like five minutes away, then 
they were there for half an hour. If a friend lives farther away, it could have been as quick as a five-minute conversation. But they go to leave. They get into David Cram's car. And David comes up to Officer Schultz to see if it's okay if he takes John to the diner. So they get to the diner. David gets out of the car, goes up to officers, and tells them that John wants to go to the cemetery and say bye to his dad. At this point, John just seems suicidal. Um, And David also at the door, at the window said that John has confessed to 30 murders. During all of this time, the neighbor that John went to that was like, I've been a bad boy. I've killed 30 people. They are all bad. Called the police and was like, yo, this dude, John Wayne Gacy, just confessed to 30 murders. Saying gave her, give or take a few. So... Officer Schultz also, like I said, had called the drug deal in. Judge Peters from part two uh, signed off on a second search warrant. And when David Cram goes to pull out of the diner to take John to say bye to his dad, he's instantly pulled over by not only DePlane PD, not only the Cook County Sheriff's Department, but also by Illinois State Department of Law Enforcement, the Division of Criminal Investigators. Investigations, my bad. At this point, he is arrested, and there are no bodies, and he is held on $1,000 for pot and Valium. Now, at John's house, they tell John, when they take him away, that they are going to tear up the floors. And John was like, no, don't do that. And then he confessed that he killed a man in the garage out of self-defense and buried him in there. And he offered to show them. And police were like, that's great, thank you, but we're still going to tear up your floors. There's no doubt in our minds, especially if you're that neighbor in part two, so that we should, you have an attic and crawl space, we're going to check everything. Nothing's going to be overturned. So then they called the medical examiner at 10 p.m., which was Dr. Robert Steen, and he had to go into the crawl spaces with his assistants, and they crawled in and they found bones, believed to be for one person, But they did let the police know that the bones looked too old to be Robert's. Then they smelled everything down there and they realized that the smell was so bad there had to be more than one or two bodies. So they kept going and they told, um, finally he told investigators that he killed 30 teenage boys and raped them. He went into details about his handcuff scheme, sham thing. He told them that he buried them in the crawl space, but he ran out of room with Robert Peast, so he dumped five in the river, and Robert was one of them. And this is when Lieutenant Kozenak found out that Robert had been dead in the attic the first time they had been there with a search warrant. The night he dumped Robert on the river, a truck driver was there. He came forward, said he saw John on the bridge, and, um, like, that he was muddy, all that sort of thing. John is still confessing and he has dates. I read and saw places, um, like when I watched his un- the confession tapes on Netflix, that he could tell the dates and like victims, but he couldn't remember the names of the victims. He basically said he kept them, he killed them to keep them quiet and he told them that he got off on them dying. He also drew a map on um, where all the bodies were And when the police followed the map, there was a body for every spot that John had said there would be. 
they found mirrors above the bed, they found red lights, they found porn, sex tapes, they found out that the garage was soundproof. And while in the house, they all had to wear hazmat suits because of how there's 30 decaying bodies in there. Like, that is not good for one's health. John Zeke's family found out that he was a victim in the most awful way possible, in my opinion, because they didn't find out from police. They found out when um, the news press showed his class ring on the news, and they were like, this ring with the initials J-A-S was found in John Wayne Gacy's home, believing to be for a victim. And that's when his parents knew that he was dead, and he was a victim of John Wayne Gacy. After gaining a profile of all the victims, they realized that they were all skinny, they all had light hair, and they were all Caucasian. They discovered five bodies the first time they went, one body being from the river, and then two days after Christmas, they found 10 more bodies. Then on December 28th, six more bodies. And by the time that they got to January, before January, they had confirmed 28 bodies, one being James Mazzaro found in the river. And now neighbors are starting to blame neighbors as all these bodies are coming up. They're like, well, how did you not see him doing this? How did you not see this person coming in and out? And they were all just kind of turning on each other. On December 29th, bodies 22, 23, 24, and 26 were found under the kitchen and laundry room. Body 25 was beneath the bathroom. Body 22 had cloth in his throat with two socks that were recovered from his pelvic region. And he was buried directly beneath body 21. Bones 24 and 23 were tangled together. And cloth was found in bodies 24 and 26. Body 25 was found in John's bathroom with cloth down his throat. And the final victim was found beneath the bathroom 10 inches below the surface of the soil. Found with cloth lodged down his throat. On January, in January, um, John was charged with seven counts of kidnapping, sexual assault, indecency to a child, and murder for Robert Peast. Um, and then they, at this point, the detectives feel like he's lying about dumping the bodies in the river and felt like maybe they, he was burying them around the river. On January 4th, there was a church in Chicago that held a service to mourn all of the victims, and 300 people showed up for it. January 8th, seven more charges were added to uh, the counts, but not for Robert. They were for John Bukovic, Gregory Godzik, John Zeke, Rick Johnson, Frank William Langdigan, and James Mazzara. Now, I know I said bodies 22, 23, and 24. At this point, they don't know who they are. I will later on go through a whole table that I have for what bodies that were found, like number of body. So like who body 22 is, who body 23 is, um, and things like that. So I promise that I will say the victim's name just at this point. They don't know who these victims are. Just a quick little note, his house was torn down in April of 1979 and the trial started on February 6, 1980. He was charged with all 33 murders. It happened in Cook County. The judge was Louis Garoppo and they did select the jury from Rockford, Illinois because the press in Chicago was so 
heavy on it. They didn't, they wanted to try to find bias outside of the city they were in. The jury included seven men and five women. The defense had John spend time in front of doctors trying to convince them that he had multiple personality disorder. I had seen in a couple places he spent 300 hours in front of them and I was like, well, how did he do that? But it was a year after his arrest that the trial started, so I can see how 300 hours is an easy thing to do, especially if he's in jail all day long. Um, he said that he had four personalities. One was the hardworking, civic-minded contractor. The second one was the clown, Pogo. The third one was the active politician. And the fourth one is policeman Jack Hanley, who he calls Bad Jack. He does blame all of the murders on Bad Jack. He um, said that when he confessed, he was just relaying what Jack had said and that Jack hated homosexuality. He also viewed sex workers, which John says prostitutes, um, as weak, stupid, and degraded scum. His defense lawyers were Sam Emirati, the guy he confessed everything to, and Robert Mota, and they tried to get Bond, and the judge denied it. Thank you, Judge Garoppo. The prosecution lawyers consisted of Chief Deputy State's Attorney William Kunkel and Assistant State's Attorneys Robert R. Egan and Terry Sullivan. They did ask for the death penalty. The defense pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, um, they said that John had a Jekyll and Hyde situation, which if you don't know what that is, I'm really sad to say this um, because for this case, but Jekyll and Hyde is one of my favorite books of all times. It is about a guy named Jekyll and he all of a sudden every morning wakes up in a weird spot, has no idea what happened the night before, and he later finds out that at night Jekyll turns off and Hyde wakes up at night or Hyde is the one who's awake during the day and Jekyll's the one at night. I haven't read the book since like seventh or eighth grade but it's one of my favorite stories um but one of them wakes up during the day and is like why am I here goes about his day totally nice great guy and then at night the other personality comes out the guy in the daytime does not remember what the next morning what happened the night before but the night guy is like super mean very criminal-like, and that's basically what the defense was saying that John was doing. They produced a few psychiatric experts who examined John, and only one would say that he diagnosed him with borderline personality disorder, and that was Dr. Thomas um, Eliso, but he wouldn't full, like, he didn't want to fully diagnose him as personal, like, having a personality disorder, which is why he said borderline. Dr. A. Refman did say that um, John was mentally fit to stand trial. Now, the prosecution called BS on the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing, and they said John was sane and in full control of his actions, and he's just purely evil. Doctors refuted the defense doctor's claims of insanity. David Cram and Michael Rossi testified that John had them both dig drainage and spread bags of lime in the crawl space. They talked about how they weren't allowed to go off the path and that John would go down there and check on them. Other employees weren't allowed to deviate down there either if John had them digging in the crawl space. Now, on February 18th, Dr. Robert Steen testified. He is the medical examiner. He said all bodies recovered were markedly decomposed and putrefied. 
They were just skeletonized remains. He said 13 victims had died of asphyxiation. Six of those had ligature strangulation. One of them had been stabbed in the chest multiple times. Ten were undetermined. And Dr. Robertstein also said that it was highly improbable that all three boys would have died from accidental erotic asphyxia. On February 21st, Jeffrey Regnall testified against John Wayne Gacy. And I think I mentioned in part one or part two that he had testified. Um, So in part, or not in part one. So on the stand, Jeffrey said everything that John did to him. And he cried when he talked about the torture. Um, He was also asked if he believed that John would change. And he said he believed he wouldn't be able to conform to the laws, um, laws expectations because of the beastly and animalistic ways he attacked me. When John John's lawyers questioned Jeffrey in the cross-examination, Jeffrey ended up throwing up on stand and he was accused from having to testify anymore. If I was a juror and one of the victims testifying threw up on the stand, at that point I would know he's not lying. I mean, I probably wouldn't think he was lying anyway if there were 33 bodies found in this man's home. But throwing up on the stand is very much an indicator of trauma and uh, at that point, I'd be like, Judge, we can wrap this up. He's guilty. Give, give him it all. Give him it all. On February 29th, Donald Voorhees testified. He was sexually assaulted by John in 1967. He told on the stand about what had happened. He talked about how John paid someone into scaring him where the guy maced and beat him up um, because they didn't want Donald going to trial. I talked about that in part one. He had paid some kid like $300 to, sorry, I like had a weird like thing in my throat I don't know what just happened it wasn't a burp it was like a bubble um and then Donald didn't know if he'd be able to testify when asked because of how traumatic everything was for him but he did briefly but then he was asked to step down on in March Robert Tonley testified and he um told about the abuse that he experienced from John in December of 1977 he was visibly distressed on the stand And while he was testifying, John kept laughing. During cross-examination, Robert Moda tried to discredit Robert, but he was very unsuccessful in that. Which, that is like the defense's, like, the defense has to try, their whole goal is to um, discredit the person on the stand. They can't get anything out of him that would go their their client's way. They have to um, try to discredit. But, again, he was unsuccessful. So the fifth week of trial, John wrote a letter to Judge Garoppo and he said he wanted a mistrial because he didn't approve of his lawyer's plea for insanity. He also said that his lawyers weren't allowing him to take the witness stand and he had wanted to. He also said that they had not called enough medical witnesses in his favor and said that the police were lying and the statements were self-serving for use by the prosecution. So the judge responded and said that, um... Both the defense and prosecution were able to call any expert witness that they wanted, as well as as many as they wanted. Judge Garoppo also said if John wanted to testify, it was his right to do so, and he was able to tell the judge whatever he wished. But John never testified. So on March 11th, closing arguments start. The prosecution started, and Terry Sullivan spoke first. He outlined all the history of abuse towards kids that John participated in, especially starting in Iowa, described the victims who lived as living dead, said he was the worst of all murderers, and in quotes said, John Gacy has accounted for more human devastation than many earthly catastrophes, 
but one must tremble. I tremble when thinking about how close he came to getting away with it all. And he had a four-hour closing argument. The defense, Sam Amarati spoke. He argued the prosecution doctors, um, argued that the prosecution doctors and repeatedly quoted the doctors that the defense had called to testify. He argued the prosecution had aroused hatred towards John. He also said that Terry Sullivan barely referred to the, any evidence in his closing argument. He tried to make John look like a man driven by compulsions and that he was unable to control. Said the prosecution didn't prove that John was sane beyond reasonable doubt. And he referred to the testimonies of the doctors who appeared for them. Sam Amarati also asked the judge and jury to put aside any prejudice against John and asked that they deliver a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity because he is in dan a danger to himself and others. They also said that he needed to study his psychology and behavior because it would benefit science. On March 12th, William Kunkel continued the argue, to argue for the prosecution, referred to the defense trying to get insanity, saying it was a sham, that John was able to think logically and control his actions. He referred to the testimony by one of the doctors who examined him in 1968 and had concluded that John had antisocial personality disorder. He was capable of committing crimes with no remorse, and he was unlikely to benefit from treatment. And if people had listened to him, he wouldn't have been freaked. That was the doctor who examined him when he was in Iowa when he got arrested for the uh, Donald Cooley or Donald Voorhees, my bad. Um, I'm sorry, the Donald Voorhees arrest. And the closing argument by William Kunkel, he took down all the pictures of the victims and he had asked the jury to not show sympathy but to show justice um, and show the same sim sympathy to John that he showed when he took the lives and put them there. He then showed pictures of the crawl space, and after this, the jury went to talk about their verdict. They only deliberated for a little over two hours, and they found him guilty. They sentenced him to death for each murder, and the execution was set for June 2nd, 1980. He did not die on June 2nd, 1980. He went to the Minard Correctional Center, and he was there for 14 years. John reached out to Russ Ewing. You're going to hear a piece of paper move out of the way. Um, he was a journalist for uh, WLS-TV. He had numerous interviews with him from 1979 to 1981. And he even wrote a book with Tim uh, Cahill called Buried Dreams. John didn't, but uh, Russ Ewing did. And the info for the first victim helped establish the identity of the Victims, and on February 15th, Henry Brisbane stabbed John in the arm with a wire. Um, he was also a death row inmate. He was, they were all working at a voluntary work program. And William Jones was also injured with a superficial stab wound to the head. They both got treated at the prison hospital. John did appeal many times. On death row, John read law books. Um, he questioned the first search warrant. He had not wanted the insanity plea. He said that he had knowledge of five of the murders, which were for McCoy, Bukovich, Godzik, Zeke, and Peast. He also said that the other 28 murders were committed by people who worked at PDM and also had keys to his house. And they were committed while he was on business, which we will get more into that conspiracy in mid-1984, uh, the Supreme Court upheld John's conviction and ordered lethal ejection for November 14, 1984. John filed an appeal. 
That was then later denied on March 4th, 1985. He filed a post-conviction peti petition wanting a new trial. Um, he had a new defense attorney named Richard King, and he believed he was provided with bad counsel in the 1980 trial, and that was dismissed on September 11th, 1986. In 1985, John appealed the decision to be executed. The conviction was upheld. Uh, and his new... I'm in 1989. Or 1988, I'm so sorry. 1988, John appealed the decision to be executed. Um, the conviction was upheld on September 29th, 1988. Um, new, new execution was for January 11th, 1989. So then John tried to appeal his conviction again. He was also denied, and the Illinois Supreme Court formally set the execution date for May 10th, 1994. So then May 9th of 1994, they transferred John to the State Correctional Center in Crest Hill. They allowed him to have a picnic with his family, which I think is totally and utterly stupid. Um, I think that's bullshit. I don't think that's fair at all. He should not have been able to say goodbye to his family. He should have been able to say goodbye to him through, like, the window or whatever. Like, they watch him, but I don't think he should have gotten a picnic with him because 33 boys did not get to have a last picnic with their parents um he asked for a bucket of kfc dozen fried shrimp french fries fresh strawberries and diet coke um that evening he and a catholic priest prayed together he was escorted escorted he was escorted to the execution chamber and he received lethal injection a crowd of a thousand people showed up outside and a majority of them were for the death penalty there was a small group that was against the death penalty um and they held a candlelight vigil the people that were there for the death row penalty um wore t-shirts saying no tears for the clown and I 100% would have worn a shirt I have very mixed feelings when it comes to the death penalty um because an eye for an eye makes the world go blind but 33, I definitely, I don't think he would have gotten any help. And I think if he had ever been able to get out of jail or um, a life sentence, I don't, I don't think he would have survived jail anyway. I think he would have been murdered because he's a predator and in jail people don't like men who rape kids. So I definitely think he would have, wouldn't have made it in jail. I also, for the statue of crime that he held, I definitely think the death penalty was in if, when it comes to only killing one person, I definitely think you need a life in jail without the possibility of parole. It's just very, I feel like the death penalty isn't just black and white. There's a lot of gray to it. And in some instances, I'm like, yes, absolutely death penalty. In other instances, I'm like, mm, maybe not. This one, definitely 100%. He wouldn't have lived in jail. He was already tried to, someone already tried to stab him once. It's, no. And they were on death row. Uh, so John was hooked up to an IV and in my notes I said because drugs <laughs> but that is how they administered um the lethal injection but as the chemicals were going into the into his arm they actually started to solidify and at that point they closed the blinds and the tubes were replaced the blinds were reopened and the drugs were administered again this took 18 minutes and his last words were kiss my ass the confirmed death was at 12.58 a.m. on May 10th, 1994. 
the anesthesiologist actually blamed the prison officials because he said that they had inexperience at conducting an execution. He said if they had done it the correct way, following the correct procedures, nothing would have gone wrong. And this actually led Illinois into adopting a new way for lethal injection to be administered. William Kunkel, um, he was the prosecution attorney. He said he got a much easier death than any of his victims. And Mr. William Kunkel, you are 100% correct on that. They did remove his brain and um, they gave it to Helen Morrison. She was a witness for um, the defense at trial and she actually interviewed serial killers to isolate common personality traits of violence uh, sociopaths. The rest of his body was cremated and that's John Wayne Casey. But I'm not done. I know we're like almost 45 minutes in, but I do have um, a little bit of updates for you guys on the case. So on October 2011, the sheriff for Cook County announced that they had obtained full DNA profiles from each of the unidentified victims, which I believe there's five unidentified victims. Um, they were gaining samples from people all over the U.S. And um, they are asking if family members of any male that went missing between 1970 and 1979 to come on in and give them their DNA. Um, because they have been able to identify three of the unidentified victims and they were able to rule out men being victims of John and they also solved four unrelated cold cases from 1972 to 1979. On November 2011, body 19 was identified through DNA testing. His name was William Bundy and his parents originally had wanted his dental records at the time of all this um, to be tested against the bodies that were found, but his dental records were actually destroyed when the old dentist retired. On July 2017, body 24 was identified as James Hackinson. He was 16, and that was due to DNA testing. On October 20 of 2021, body 5 was identified as Francis Wayne Alexander. He was 21 years old, um, and they identified him through forensic genealogy, which I don't think 23andMe does it, but websites like 23andMe where you have to send your DNA in to get tested, they're able to use that DNA to track to like get connections to people. So that is how Francis was um, identified. But he actually was never reported missing because his parents thought he had just moved from Chicago to California. Um, And they thought he did this after he had his last conversation with his mom in November of 1976. Um, there are still five victims unidentified, and in 1979, Betty Pat uh, Catliff used the skulls of the unidentified victims to create a facial reconstruction on what they would have looked like at the time of the murders. So, before I get into his potential accomplices, I just want to say, if you or your family members know any male that you were related to that went missing in the in Illinois at all around the, um, you know, 1972 to 1979, please, please, please submit your DNA or your family's DNA if it's their brother or something because they will be able to test it and get a a victim will pop up and they will be able to identify one of the unidentified victims. So please, 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 even if it's your third cousin, just try it please help us get these unidentified victims identified. 
I'm also now going to get into my chart about all the victims because we're going to move on to potential accomplices after that and I want to make sure we hit them. Okay, so this will be long, so please forgive me because it is all the victims and their body number, like the recovery number, because I want to make sure that all of them are talked about, they're all their names. We have Timothy Jack McCoy. This is also going by the date of murder, so the first one to be found, things like that. So, Timothy Jack McCoy, he was 16. He died on January 3rd, 1972. He was body number nine that was recovered, and he was found in the crawl space. John uh, Bukovich was 18. He died on July 13th, or 31st, 1975. Body number two, he was found in the garage. Daryl Julius Sampson was 18. He died on April 6, 1976, body number 29, and he was found in the dining room. Randall Wayne Reffitt was 15 years old. He died on May 14, 1976, body number 7, in the crawl space. Samuel G. Dodd Stapleton, 14 years old. He died on May 14, 1976. He was body number 6, also found in the crawl space. Um, the next victims are all found in the crawl space. The first one that, the, ne- the one, the next one that's not found in the crawl space, I'll say where their body was found. Um, Michael Lawrence Bonin was 17. He died on June 3rd, 1976. He was body 18. William Huey Carroll Jr. was 16. He died on June 13th, 1976. He was body number 22 or 24. Nope, 22. And he found in the crawl space. I looked at the wrong one for a moment. James Byron Hackinson was 16. He died on August 5th, 1976. He was body 24, and he was found in the crawl space. Rick Lewis Johnston was 17. He died August 6th, 1976. He was body number 23. Kenneth Ray Parker, 16 years old, died on October 24th, 1976, and he was body number 15. Michael M. Murano was 14 years old. He died October 24th. 1976, he's body 14. William George Bundy, 19 years old, he died on October 26, 1976, and he was body 19. Francis Wayne Alexander was 21 years old, he died on December 1st of 1976, he was body number 5. George John Godzik was 17, he died on December 12th, 1976, and he is body number 4. John Allen Zeke is 19 years old. He was, uh, he died on January 20th, 1977, body number three. John Stephen Prestige was 20 years old. He died on March 15th, 1977, and he was body number one. Matthew Walter Bowman was 19 years old. He he died on July 5th, 1997, or 1977, I am so sorry. He was body number eight. Robert Edward Gilroy Jr. was 18 years old, and he died on September 15, 1977, and he was body 25. John Anthony Mowry was 19. He died September 25, 1977. He was body 25. John, uh, or I'm sorry, Russell, Russell Lloyd Nelson was 21 years old. He died October 17, 1977. He was body 16. Robert David Witch was 16 years old. He died on November 10th, 1977. He was body 11. 
Tommy Joe Bowling was 20 years old. He died on November 18, 1977. He was body number 12. David Paul Talsma was 19 years old. He died on December 9, 1977, and he was body 17. William Wayne Kindred was 19 years old. He died on February 16, 1978, and he was body 27. Timothy David O'Rourke was 20 years old. He died on June 16th, um, somewhere in between June 16th and June 23rd of 1978, and he was body 31. Frank William Langdon was 19 years old. He died on November 4th, 1978, and he was body 32. Him and Timothy were found in the De Plains River. James Mazzara was also found in the De Plains River. He died on November 24th, 1978. He is body 33. And Robert Jerome Peast was 15 years old, and he was found December 11th, 1978. I know I kind of messed up talking um, with that table. It was a lot. It's a lot to see the names and realizing, like, their deaths and just remembering everything I read about all of them. It's just really, really sad. Um, so now we're going to talk about his potential accomplices. He had asked if his associates were arrested when he was arrested. Um, and he had said that they uh, participated directly in the killings and that David Cram and Michael Rossi were involved in several murders. Not just John's defense attorneys, but other criminal defense attorneys came to the conclusion that John had an accomplice or accomplices. Because in the 80s, John told Robert Ressler that two or three PDM employees helped in several murders. Now, Robert Ressler is an FBI profile profiler. Um, Jeffrey Regnall also said that during his abuse at the hands of John, that another boy with light brown hair had knelt down to him and watched. He said he also saw a light on during the abuse, like come on during the abuse at a different part of the house. Three days before the arrest, two officers followed John to meet up, uh, John, followed John to a meetup, and that was with Michael Rossi and a guy named Ed Hefner. Um, they had talked to the, like, he had talked to them farther away from where the police were, um, but then he got closer to the officers, and he said, and this is what the officers heard, in quotes, you'd better not let me down, you fuckers, you owe it to me, end quotes. Um, when they were talking farther away, the police did hear a little bit what they said. And part of it that they heard was, in quotes, and what, buried like the other five, end of quotes. So, during his death row interview, John named three other PDM employees that were considered suspects. Um, he named David Cram and Michael Rossi. But then he also named Philip Pasque, or Pasquet who was a close associate of John Norman and friends with David Cram. Now you're probably like, Peyton, who the fuck is John Norman? And none of these parts in this one hour long part, have you mentioned anything about a guy named John Norman? Well, Norman, I'm going to call him by his last name because two Johns in this scenario. Norman had been the leader of a nationwide sex trafficking ring, which was based in Chicago. And this was known as the Delta Project. Kenneth Parker and Michael Marin, which are two victims of John Gacy, were last seen near Nor where Norman lived. So this suggested to officers that John was possibly involved with the, the sex trafficking ring. And by John being involved, I totally mean John Wayne Gacy because obviously John Norman is involved. 
Uh, John also claimed that he wasn't in Chicago when 16 of the identified victims had disappeared. In 2012, two lawyers from Chicago proved with travel records that he had been out of town on business at the time of three murders. And so this goes along with the theory that he did have accomplices or an accomplice. Like one of the examples given was that John flew to Pittsburgh three days before um, Robert Gilroy went missing and he flew home the day after he went missing. Now things are getting fishy with Robert Young because um, Robert Young went traveling with victim Russell Nelson and they were visiting Chicago in October of 1977. They gave different accounts. He gave different accounts on Russell's disappearance because he had told Russell's family that he didn't even show or he didn't even see. Um, okay, hold on. Robert told Russell's family that he didn't even see Russell show up to the bar. Um, but he, Robert told investigators that he saw Russell outside the bar with the, like in a crowd that um, Robert had looked away. And when he looked back, Russell was gone. But the police believed that Robert, like, wouldn't have gone, like, Robert would have seen Russell leave, um, especially if he was that fixated on him in the crowd. But Robert is the one who filed a missing persons report with the Chicago police. He did, however, and I think it's so shitty, request money from Russell's parents to finance a search for Russell. Russell's brothers ended up showing up to search for him, and Robert offered them a job with PDM. Robert was never summoned to testify. Um, so that's example two of how he could have had accomplices. Example three happened on September 26, 1977, because travel records for um, John showed he had a job in Michigan at 6 a.m. For the day after John Mowry's disappearance, who was last seen leaving his mom's house, at 10 p.m. on September 25th. Now, y'all know I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Indiana. So, Michigan sits on top of me, and Illinois is right beside me. It takes three hours from West Lafayette to get to Chicago. Now, I don't know where at in Michigan his, like, business deal was, but he very could have made it, like, very could have made it. He very well could have made it at night, driving, or taking... They didn't say when his, like, his plane was. Uh -huh. But it is very possible that he could have driven overnight up there. Now, if it's a 12-hour drive, no. But if it's not that long of a drive, there is a slim possibility that he could have made it. But um, I'm also going to call... John Mowry by his last name, since they are both Johns involved. So Mowry's roommate worked for John Gacy at PDM and also lived with him. He had moved into Mowry's apartment a week before he went before Mowry went missing. Um, and two people came forward that were friends with Mowry and said that the roommate had offered Mowry to, in quotes, meet a man who is going out of town two days before Mowry's disappearance. So that, that seems a little fishy to me. Um, there was an, we're going to kind of go into the Amber Alert. So in 1984, Sam Amirati, which is John Wayne Gacy's defense attorney, 
one of them, one out of the two, he wrote up procedures for the Missing Child Recovery Act of 1984 because at this point, if your child was missing under the age of 18 and you reported it, the police had to wait 72 hours before they could um, investigate and have a search party. And by what Sam Amorati had put in with Illinois and the Missing Child Recovery Act, it removed the 72-hour wait, and this later was adopted into what is now known as the Amber Alert. But the this isn't the Amber Alert. Amber Alert started after 1994 when a girl named Amber disappeared. Um, and I will talk, not in this case, but I want to talk about her later um, in a different case. But basically, when she went missing, her parents fought for efforts, which is what helped create the Amber Alert. And one of the, like, one of the things in the Amber Alert was something that Sam Amorati had brought to the table. So, that is part three. And wasn't that a doozy of a part? Like, altogether, this would have been two hours long. And so, I, pro I could have easily made episode one, part one, one hour, and then this one, one hour. But this one was one hour on its own. One hour on its own. So, this would have been part two, all of it. Part one and part two could have easily been put together. So, the next case is Iowa. Indiana, Iowa. Sometimes I have to, sometimes I have to th sing the U.S. song with, like, Alaska, Alabama, just so I can remember. But it's Iowa. Yeah. And then Kansas. And I do believe that Iowa will be one part. It might just be a longer part rather than splitting it up into half an hour. Um, but that's it. That is the awful, awful story of John Wayne Gacy and how before Ted Bundy, he was the most notorious serial killer of all of America. <sighs> anyway, anyway, like I always say, Please, please, please follow our Instagram because I post, I say I post pictures. I really need to get caught up. I think the last pictures I posted were of the Honolulu Strangler. Um, but please follow the spooky underscore ripped Jean mom for pictures of victims, pictures of uh, killers, things like that, the people we talk about. So I don't know where I was going. My brain's so fried from John Wayne Gacy that I can't even think. So follow that. If you guys have any ideas of stuff you want to listen to, spooky, conspiracy theory, murdery, just DM me or message me on Facebook if we're friends. I had um, one of my friends message me the other day about a case that I think a lot of people have heard of, but there's not a whole lot of information about. It's the cabin killings. Um, and she actually sent it to me because a guy had posted pictures of his dad compared to the sketches and was like, my dad's a bad guy and I'm pretty sure my dad did this. So I think I'm going to do those ones uh, if it's not one of the most notorious like killings or serial killers. Um, for that state that it took place in, it'll definitely be like a bonus episode because I definitely want to do it. So my brain's fried. I'm going to drink coffee. I've started to work out and my new shaker bottle comes today. Um, it's really cool because it's electric, so it does it for me. And I got a new laptop. And when I say I got a new laptop, it's not actually a new one for me. It's Bailey's old laptop, but it's not old. It's like not even a year old. 
and is that a year old? Maybe two years old. But it's a MacBook with like a touch bar and stuff and it has way more storage than my MacBook Air that I had. And he doesn't use his laptop, so he gave it to me so I can use it for like podcasting and it just helps me better too. And my new case comes in and I'm so excited. It's like a gray leopard print. Bailey's case that he has on it is um, like an American flag and very rustic. And it's definitely his aesthetic, but it's not mine. So I'm very excited for all those new things. And I think I'm going to take Paisley outside to play in her pool today and get unfried from John Wayne Gacy because he's a lot. But thank you guys for tuning in. I love you all. I appreciate you all. I love all the support you guys give me. You guys are awesome. I love you. Bye.